If you're here tonight and have not received the two study sheets on Mark 13, if you'll raise your hand, Mike has some that he'll be happy to put in your hands. We're at the point now where we are on the verge of wrapping up our studies of Mark. Next week, Lord willing, we'll consider some fresh perspectives on the Passion Narrative, chapters 14 and 15. And then we'll take the last week to look at the resurrection of our Lord. I appreciate how so many of you have been with us in the course of the entire study, and we now come with Mark 13 to the most difficult portion of this gospel. My suggestion is going to be that you take these study sheets, take them home with you this evening, but that you put them aside and simply have the scripture open to Mark 13, for there are many details in the account that I will be drawing to your attention that will help us to penetrate uh, this passage, and I think that that will be the best way to have it done. You may remember in the Galilean ministry, there was a point in one of the early phases of that ministry where people were continually coming to Jesus from the Transjordan, from Idumea, from Tyre and Sidon, from Galilee, from Judea. They just were coming in waves. And the time came when Jesus turned away from the crowds and began to concentrate solely upon the twelve those that he wished to be with him, those that he intended to appoint as his commissioned representatives with authority over demons and the ability to speak his work, word and to do his work. And we are at that same point in the Jerusalem ministry. Jesus from the time that he entered into Jerusalem, was engaged in a number of prophetic actions, and we looked at them last Wednesday. But now there is a transition from that very public aspect of the ministry to the private instruction of the Twelve. And the transitional passage is found in chapter 12, 38, through chapter 13, verse 2 and you will see that it all focuses around the temple. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the place of, of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. 
but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. As he was leaving the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? replied Jesus. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. I think the important way to begin to grasp this transitional passage is to recognize that prophetic action was accompanied by prophetic speech. And that's essentially what we have in this bridge passage. It begins with a prophetic warning directed toward the biblical scholars. In order to make the point, I almost was tempted to wear for you my Harvard doctoral robe you would have been very impressed. It is a rich scarlet. I've had women say, I'd love to have a dress made out of that material. <laughs> it has thick velvet on it. And because Harvard was the first of our colleges or universities, it is the only school that is allowed to have the fleur-de-lis on that thick velvet uh siding uh, that comes down in the front of the robe. And you can tell from what college a particular person graduated at Harvard by the color of the fleur-de-lis. If it's green, it was the medical college. If it's light blue, the school of education. If it's dark blue, it's a PhD in the arts and the humanities. Mine is red for theology. The reason I didn't do that was not only the prophetic warning that I find in the pages of Mark, <laughs> but it wouldn't make the point well, because here's the interesting fact. The scholars left to the everyday people like you bright colors they would wear a robe of white. So that in the midst of all of the bright colors we have here tonight, someone walks into our midst and takes his seat down here. We would certainly see him stand out if he was clothed wholly in white. Now the white robe was the mark of the scholar. But Jesus makes the point, although these men like to walk around in their flowing robes so they are 
recognized. Although they are caught up with self-promotion in the marketplaces, and they enjoy the most important seats in the synagogues, and of course, at the five o'clock meal. Why, they devour widows' houses. They prey on persons expecting to be supported by them, and for a show they make lengthy prayers, and such men, for all of their grandeur, will be punished most severely. I hear this word as a warning. Biblical scholarship in the current time, as well as in the first century, is not to be a cloak for self-exaltation. It is to be the mark of servanthood within the church. And I am grateful to God for a congregation that expects no less from those who serve it in the word. Now Jesus was leaving the court of the Israelite men, and he came into the court of the Israelite women. And that's where he saw a series, I think there were 11 of them, trumpet-shaped receptacles where people would put their gifts. There was no thought of passing an offering plate. It was rather that you came and you put your gift within the receptacle, and it was all very public. And the disciples were awed as they saw a number of very wealthy people who would come and put rich gifts into one of these receptacles. Oh, how much could be done for the work of the temple, for the work of Mother Judaism, as it were, with these rich gifts. And then a poor widow came up. She had in her hand two tiny copper coins. The total value of them were less than one of our pennies. And she put them in the receptacle. Now you can be very certain that if we're taking an offering for the deacon's fund, or we're taking the offering on Sunday morning, and I reach into my pocket, and I pull out a penny and put it in, no one is going to be very impressed that sees me making that gift. And yet Jesus praised her and said she had given more than anyone else. Why? She could have kept one of the coins for herself, but she recognized that the claim of God upon her life was absolute. And she gave what she had, everything. That's what God asks of us, that we should give everything. And the disciples had a rude lesson in prophetic discernment as Jesus pointed out that old widow. Then as Jesus left the temple, going from the court of the women, 
out the court of the Gentiles and beyond the temple, it was not a surprise that one of the disciples should say, what impressive stones. If you have ever visited Jerusalem and seen something of the Wailing Wall, one of the substructures of the temple, you know the massive size of some of that Herodian masonry. It was, pardon me, it was all of white marble. All of the substructures, all of the superstructures, white marble, sometimes 30 feet in length, about 8 feet in height, about 4 or 5 feet in width, massive stones. And there was not only the temple proper, there were the courts, there were the balustrades, there was the huge facade. What magnificent buildings! As I told you last week, why the rabbis who had no love for Herod said, he who has never seen Herod's temple in his, de in his own life has never seen beauty. It gleams in the eye of the pilgrim as a mountain of, of white marble and gold. And Jesus said, you see those stones? Not one is going to be left upon another. They will be all torn down. Now, it seemed incredible, undoubtedly. But do you know in the year 70 when Titus and the Roman forces finally broke through all of the defenses of Jerusalem and Titus gave the order for the temple to be burned, the gold leaf that was on the roof and all of the trimmings of the temple melted and it fell down between the crevices and the rocks. And then the Roman soldiers took crowbars and they pried the stones apart in order to have access to the gold. And now, so completely, has not one stone be left upon another that archaeologists are not at all in agreement as to the actual proportions and the location of the temple to this day. Many of those stones were taken to Baalbek in Syria, where they were used in a pagan temple as a humiliation of the Jewish people who had dared to rebel against Rome. Not one stone was left upon another. The prophecy was literally fulfilled. Now with that bridge, we come, as I said, to the most difficult portion of the Gospel of Mark, the conversation on the Mount of Olives. And it's here that I ask that you put the sheets aside and focus upon the text in front of you. This prophetic discourse on the destruction of the temple stands out as the only extended speech that is found in the entirety of the Gospel of Mark. The key issues that have to be addressed 
are the issues of the character of the material, the purpose of the material, its structured arrangement, and its essential authenticity. Let me say it right up front. I am absolutely convinced Jesus is the source of the prophetic discourse on the Mount of Olives that is the subject of this great chapter. Now this discourse or this conversation on the Mount of Olives occupies a very special place in the Mark and Outline. It is the bridge from the public ministry of Jesus, which ends with conflict with authority, all of the Jewish authorities, as we saw last week, and the Passion Narrative, where conflict with Jewish authorities is the occasion for the death of Jesus on Golgotha. It occupies a very special place. And during the course of Jesus' trial, as well as at the actual execution of Jesus on the cross, there is reference to the one who said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up. And what Mark wants you to recognize is there is a connection between the implied condemnation of Jesus in Mark 13 and the death of Je uh, uh, the, the implied condemnation of Jerusalem and the temple in Mark 13 and the death of Jesus. That's what Mark wants you to carry away. That the judgment on Jerusalem wasn't simply an accident of history. It is the culmination of a history of the rejection of the heart of God that was expressed through the prophets, through the seers, through the teachers whose heart beat with the heart of God, and ultimately through the Son. Now it's interesting to ask the question, what's the literary form of Mark 13? And it is essentially a farewell address. You know what happens in a farewell address? Jacob is dying. He calls his sons to him. He reminds them of some of the experiences they have had in the past. He warns them of some of the events that will take place after his death. And he charges them with a sacred responsibility in the present time. There is a consideration of the past, there is concern for the future, and there is central concern for the present. That's exactly what we have here. Jesus knows that the church is going to go through a period in which he is no longer present in a visible, physical sense with his disciples. He has to prepare the twelve, and he has to prepare the church for what is going to be a very difficult period. Because when questions arise, we're not going to be able to turn simply to Jesus and say, 
how do we handle this? So the passage consists of exhortation expressed in the imperative, consolation expressed in the indicative, with supporting statements that are introduced by the conjunction for. It's essentially a farewell address in which Jesus responds to a pointed question asked by four of his disciples. Notice that question in verse 3 and 4. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Now, the, what we have here is a pointed question. Jesus had said, not one stone will be left upon another. The central concern of the disciples is, when will the destruction of the temple take place? And what will be the sign that all of these things are about to occur? Now notice that Jesus' answer is primarily in terms of imperatives. For example, take a look at verse 5. Hear the imperative, watch out, that no one deceives you. Verse 9, you must watch out. It's the very same expression. Verse 23, so watch out. I have told you everything, or I've told you all these things ahead of time. Same expression. And verse 33. Watch out. Be alert. The very same expression. Or take a look at verse 7. Do not worry, oh no, excuse me, do not be alarmed. Verse 11. Do not worry beforehand. Verse 21. Do not believe it with reports that the Messiah is here or he is there. Verse 28. Learn the lesson from the fig tree. Verse 29. Know that all of these things will be accomplished in this generation. Verse 33, be alert. Verse 35 and 37, the same expression, be vigilant, be watchful. So the emphasis falls on very practical instruction. And the constant form of address in the second person plural is characteristic of Mark 13. Now I want to go back 
to the fact that at four very important transitional points in Mark's arrangement of Jesus' words, you have the characteristic expression, watch out. Let's begin with verse 5. Jesus said to them, watch out, that no one deceives you. Now in that exhortation, Jesus begins to answer the disciples' question concerning the destruction of the temple. They are to watch out that they are not deceived by the course of events in thinking that the end time is at hand. That warning is repeated in verse 9. Watch out. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. Here, the command, watch out, is applied specifically to the disciples and to the prospect of their suffering. Persecution doesn't mean that the end time is at hand. It is simply an occasion for witness to the nations. For that must take place before the end comes, as verse 10 makes clear. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. What is required for vindication as the people of God is patient endurance. Verse 13, all men will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be vindicated. Now verses 14 to 23 speak of an appalling sacrilege, a sacrilege that is so serious that it brings utter desolation to the land to the capital, to the, to, uh, the, uh, uh, to the temple itself. An appalling sacrilege that will be accompanied by a wave of false messiahs and false prophets. But Jesus says in verse 23, you've been forewarned. You must watch out to avoid being deceived into thinking this is the end. And then following the description of the return of the Lord, the term New Testament scholars use for that is the parousia. Verses 24 to 27, you have instruction regarding the time. Notice that in verses 29 and 30. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, it's right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And then in verse 32, but concerning the parousia, 
No one knows about that day, the day of the Lord, or that moment. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So watch out. Live alert. Live in the light of the certainty that certain events must occur. But we must be the people who walk with an alertness because we are the people of the Lord. So watch out and be alert. Now, what we have here is a speech pattern that we need to pay attention to. The speech pattern that's evident throughout the conversation on the Mount of Olives can be analyzed as exhortation that we've seen expressed in the imperative mood and consolation expressed in the indicative mood that's supported by a statement introduced by the conjunction for. And I want you to see that pattern in 13, 5 through 8. Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying that I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars, do not be disturbed, for this must take place. But it's not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, there'll be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines. Now, the reason I point out that speech pattern to you is that there are many people who turn to Mark 13, and they want to find a little chart they can make that will tell them when the end time is at hand. And they pay all of the attention to what is said for there will be many who come in my name. There are many who will claim to be me. There are many uh, false prophets and so on. That isn't the main point at all. The main point are in the imperatives. The main point are in the words of consolation. And all we have in the supporting statements are supporting reasons why you ought to watch out. It's not yet the end, and we aren't to make that confusion. Now think of all of the talk, all of the articles you have read about the to the year 2000. I understand that in Great Britain, they are anticipating a catastrophic experience. Certainly within the United States, some of the most powerful computer wizards are working on how we're going to make this transition into the year 2000. For all of our electricity is dependent upon huge computers. They're expecting brownouts. They're expecting various crises. Scarcity of resources. Your credit card, which says that you have an expiration date 
or perhaps a beginning date in the year 2000 isn't going to register. A time of crisis. You can believe that if all of that is true, the pulpits of our land will be filled with preaching about the end is at hand. Survivalists will have people flocking to their groups. Let's get our resources together. Let's go into hiding. Let's put on our ascension garments and be ready to be taken. The end is not yet. We are to be alert. We are to watch out. We are not to confuse the preliminary events with the end time itself. And that's what Jesus wants the disciples to know. That's what he wants them to carry away, and that's what he wants us to carry away. We are not called to calculation. We are called to be the vigilant men and women of God who know that this period of time is a period in which the church will be persecuted, but mission will advance, and we are to give ourselves to the work of evangelism. We are to give ourselves to the work of witnessing to the nations. We are to move out from Franklin to the nations of the world. And vigilance, alertness, spiritual maturity is what is required of the people of God. Not a frightened spirit of finding some safe place to hide but to be in the midst of the people who are frightened and to put your arms around them and to tell them the servant heart of God is made visible in the servant heart of Jesus and I want to be your servant as well because no one will believe that God cares for them unless they experience that care through you. That's what the church is to be doing in a time when everyone else is falling apart at the seams. Now, the primary purpose of the conversation on the Mount of Olives is to promote faith and obedience in a time of distress and upheaval. When everyone else is falling apart, let the people of God be rock-steady, because the hope that is ours is that the time will come when the triumph of the Son of Man will be heralded in history, just as the humiliation of the people of God has taken place within history. God will be vindicated at the end of history, and so will his people. And there is to be no fear within the people of God. Do you see how important this word was for Mark and for the Christians of Rome, who were being torn apart and ravaged by the Roman government? This was not a time to flee from the church. This wasn't a time to simply hide in the catacombs. This was a time for faith and for obedience, even though the world itself seemed to be coming apart. 
and when ten out of the fourteen districts of Rome were on fire, and the eternal city seemed to be ravaged from its roots. That was the time for the people of God to evidence they had a hope which could not be altered. The Son of Man will indeed come upon the clouds of heaven, and the one who was crucified and mocked in his crucifixion will return as the triumphant Son of Man. For as Jesus said, but in those days following that distress, the distress that accompanied the destruction of the temple, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, men and women will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. That's consummation. And we don't have to worry about that. That's already settled in the plan of God. All we have to worry about is will we be the rock-steady people of God in distress, in times of upheaval, in times of uncertainty? And will people find in us a source of strength, turning to us and saying, what's the basis of the confidence you seem to have while I am shaking in my boots? And the answer is not, I've always been calm. The answer is, I have a hope that cannot be shaken. The Son of Man will come upon the clouds and the people of God will be vindicated. And all of the preliminary events will be behind us. And we will share and participate in that great moment of triumph. And do you know when you do so? When you stand before the congregation and you say, I leave the world and all of its hold upon me. And I identify with the little flock the one to whom great promises have been given. I leave a people respected in the world and identify myself with a people held in contempt in the world because I know that I have been rescued from the hold of the world upon my life by the liberating act of the Son of God in his death on the cross his resurrection, his exaltation to God's right hand. And every time we say, Jesus is Lord, and every time we affirm God has raised him from the dead, we identify with the church triumphant that shall share in the great triumph of the Son of Man who comes upon the clouds. Jesus' words then, provide a solid base, a solid foundation for the Christian hope and the triumphant return of the Son of Man. That's the one event in the light of which all of the uncertainties, all of the stress, all of the upheaval of the present time suddenly 
comes into clear view. And that fact enabled Mark and the Christians of Rome, tiny as they were, helpless as they were, frail as they were, to face the crisis of the 60s with realism and with hope. And we are to be no different as we approach the year 2000. All right, now, what you've been waiting for. How do we analyze the structure of this event? The key is the expression, these things. Notice it in verse 4, where it occurs twice. The disciples ask, tell us when these things will happen. And what will be the sign that they are all, all these things are about to be fulfilled? Now the word, the expression, these things, turn out to be reference points throughout the conversation on the Mount of Olives, and they are the key to what Jesus was talking about. In response to the disciples' question, Jesus announces the sufferings that can be expected by the people of God in verses 5 through 23. He also announces the final victory that will bring all the period of trial to its termination. Now I want you to notice verse 23. In verses 5 through 23, Jesus gives a sketch of the historical events that must precede the final salvation. And he cautions in verse 23, Watch out! I have told you ahead of times all things. All these things. There's a correspondence between the question of the disciples in verse 4, tell us when these things will be accomplished, and the response of Jesus in verse 23, I have told you all these things. Now that same reference point is found in verse 29 and 30. Verse 28, now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer has drawn near. You know that the next event will be the inbreaking of summer. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, it's right at the door. The disciples asked, what will be the sign that not one stone will be left upon another? They're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. What will be the sign that all of these things are occurring? Jesus says, even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near. It is right at the door. Then he says, I tell you the truth, this generation, within 40 years, this generation will certainly not pass away 
until all these things have happened. And you can bank on it. You can take that to the bank. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Jesus is talking about the fact that the destruction of the temple will take place within the period of some 40 years. And it was in the year 70 that the temple was destroyed at the order of Titus, bringing to a climax the rebellion of the people of God in Israel. Now the point of Jesus' warning in the conversation on the Mount of Olives is you must take all the preliminary events for what they are. Preliminary events only. These events have to be fulfilled within a generation. But they are only preliminary events, even the event of the destruction of the temple. Now, if we were Jews in the first century, and there is this magnificent temple, and people come from all over the Roman world on three great feast occasions, the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost or of Harvest, and the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall, so that Jerusalem, a city of 50,000, swells to a quarter of a million people. It is inevitable that when a crisis comes that destroys the center of all of this, we're going to say the end is at hand. The end of everything we've known, the end of everything we have believed in, the end of everything that has been the center of our hopes. Remember the prophet Jeremiah? He stood before the people of his generation and he said, Stop saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Why, God will cause not one stone to be left upon another. And Nebuchadnezzar came. And on the ninth of Ab, the great temple of Solomon was burned and destroyed. Jesus is the new Jeremiah. And he comes to us and he says, Stop saying the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, as if that's the basis of our hope. The basis of our hope is the triumphant return of the Son of Man. It's not in some physical structure. If this structure were to be destroyed tonight, we would meet in homes. We would become the church scattered and perhaps far more intimate with one another than we are because our homes can only take 20, 30, 40 people at the most in our largest living rooms. Then I know this man's name is Larry. This man's name is Bob. His wife's name is Sandy. Because we have laughed together, we have cried together, we have prayed together. 9.30 service where Brenda and I come to the sanctuary, where Randy and his family worship at the same time, and many of you, how can we possibly know the names of all of those who gather? 
And then when the service is over, well, we've got it on the screen. Please exit. Right. <laughs> Little time to come and say, hey, I'm Bill. Tell me who you are. Tell me where you've come from. Tell me what you're wrestling with. Tell me how you are. No time for that. We are not dependent upon a physical structure. We are dependent upon our Christian hope. So here's the way that I break it down. Look in the word itself. The disciples' question is the springboard for the conversation. It's verse 4. Tell us when these things will happen and what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled. Jesus, in verses 5 through 23, speaks of certain preliminary events that mark a period of distress. He tells us to watch out that we not be deceived. He says, many will come claiming to be me. They will deceive many. You're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. Don't be alarmed. Such things must happen. But the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. That was a technical expression among the rabbis, the birth pangs that announce the arrival of the Messiah. It's only the beginning, these preliminary events. So Jesus warns against deception. He then calls us to steadfastness and to engagement in mission. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils. You will be flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand what you are to say. Just say what is given to you by God at that time, for it is not you speaking but the Holy Spirit. Why, brother will betray brother to death, and a father is child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All persons will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be vindicated. In other words, the sufferings which Jesus experienced in his own life as his own brothers turned against him, will be replicated, will be repeated in the experiences of the people of God. You and I have been largely exempt from that. But I remember the first time I entered into Leipzig, and I had a chance to talk to university students at a time when we had to cross over into East Berlin. And I heard about the repressions. I heard of the rewards that were given to students who would spy 
on other people within their apartment building, who would report their own parents in order to keep their place in the university, and how families were torn apart. It has happened in China, it has happened in Indonesia, it has happened in various places in Africa, and it certainly happened in East Germany. And there was a repressiveness you and I have probably never experienced. But it is no guarantee we will not experience that. It's after that. Oh, and then what's this appalling sacrilege that brings the desecration upon the land, that brings defeat? Do you know in the year of November 66, the Jewish people experienced an enormous victory in which they annihilated the 12th Roman legion under one of the greatest of the generals, Cestius Gallus. And it raised up a spirit of expectation. The God of the Maccabees was alive. And Judaism, or Israel, was going to conquer Rome. But the zealots came into Jerusalem. They armed the sanctuary. They brought in murderers who trampled the holy place underfoot. Then Josephus tells us they climaxed their iniquity by taking a clown and consecrating him as the high priest. Mark says, when you see an appalling sacrilege standing where he ought not to stand, let the reader understand, Now's the time for flight. I brought with me. I won't take time to look it up. Eusebius, early church history, where in book three he tells us there was an oracle in Jerusalem that the destruction of the temple was coming. Almost certainly that oracle is found in the book of Daniel. And when the Jewish Christians heard that oracle, they fled Jerusalem and they fled to Pella in the Transjordan. And we know by the spring of 68 that was impossible. So it was in the period between the great victory over the 12th Roman Legion in November of 66 and the spring of 68 that Jewish Christians left the city. Now even as in the prophecy of Ezekiel, you see the glory of God moving from the most holy place out to the entrance of the holy place. And from there, out into the court of the Israelite men. And then the Shekinah glory passed through the courts. And Ezekiel watches in horror as it finally leaves the temple precincts and disappears because he knows the Lord has withdrawn his protection upon the temple and it is ready for destruction. And that's exactly what happened in Jerusalem. Now, flight is the theme of verses 14 to 23. And there are some details you might not quite 
understand. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the house to take anything out. Jewish Christians would gather on the flat roofs for prayer. They, of course, had to go down the flight of stairs in order to flee, but they weren't to go in their houses and grab anything. They were simply to flee. No one in the field goes back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers, because flight, travel is difficult. Pray it will not take place in winter. Why? Because in the winter, the Jordan becomes so swollen, it cannot be passed, traversed. And there will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning. Now, when the Lord returns, there'll be no opportunity for flight. <laughs> it's, it's all there. We'll call, I mean, those who do not know the Lord will call for the rocks to fall upon them. They will seek to hide. It will do no good. Flight is impossible. But the flight has to do with the destruction of the temple. Then you have the triumph of the Son of Man in 24 to 27, and then more preliminary events. When you see these preliminary events occurring, the false prophets, the false messiahs, don't be distracted in your flight by them. In fact, it all comes to a summation in verse 33. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come, when the Lord is to return. It's like a person going away. He leaves his house. He puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and he tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be vigilant, watch. That's the word to carry away. It may be the structures we have counted on, will fall all around us. Brenda and I came from Seattle. They're expecting the big one, the big earthquake. Brenda said to me only this week, did you call our insurance agency? Make sure we have earthquake insurance on the house because we owe so much money on the mortgage. <laughs> Why, when the big one comes, it may be only a preliminary event. But I know this, we are to be the watchful, vigilant, alert people of God seeking every opportunity to tell men and women and young people about the loving heart of God our Father expressed through the servant heart of the Lord Jesus as we become the servant people of the Lord Jesus wherever we are. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this powerful word. Thank you, Lord, that you have entrusted us as your servants. You have told us to be watchful. You have told us to be alert. You have told us not to be sleepy. We confess we like to sleep. 
but you have called us to wakefulness. Help us to be alert. Help us to seize every opportunity to bring people and relationships into relation with the redemptive purposes of our loving God. And to you be glory through Jesus Christ, our triumphant Son of Man, our triumphant Lord. Amen. You are to